If you have a Bible, we're going to be in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, 18 through 23. It should be on the screen uh, behind me. And so I'm going to read it, and then we'll take a moment to pray before we kind of see what God has for us tonight. Acts 18, 18 through 23, says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. He went to the barber to cut his hair, for he was under a vow, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. This is God's word. Let's go ahead and pray. And uh, before I pray for us, I just want to give you about 30 seconds that you might pray and ask God. Uh, to clear your mind, to speak to you tonight, to open up to what he has to share. So go ahead and do that now. Father, you are God, and we are your sons and your daughters, and Jesus, we are your body. And so, Father, speak to your children tonight. We know that you hear our prayers, you hear our cries. God, we come in with many questions about life and the future, who you are, what you want for us. But God, we want to open our minds and our hearts that you might speak through your word tonight in a way that encourages us, that breathes life into us, not just for the week ahead, but really breathes life into us in such a way that we might be different because we've encountered you the God of the universe, the God who is our Father. And so we pray this to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I want to start tonight just by talking about just the repetition in the book of Acts. Um, if you have been here regularly and gone through the book of Acts, you know that starting in about chapter 13, it feels like the author is just repetitious over and over and over again about recounting the story of Paul that he, along with somebody else, has gone into a new city, has preached the gospel, made disciples, planted churches, and then moved on. And it just feels as though it just keeps happening over and over and over again. Now, the reason that he uses repetition is because, as many of you know, it is a creative device. It's a creative device used in music and in literature to really emphasize and highlight certain themes and aspects so that they become memorable to us. Now, when it comes to things of God, we can sometimes get annoyed with repetition, but repetition actually serves a purpose, especially in God's word, that we might see clearer exactly what he has for us who follow him. Now, this, that truth transcends the scriptures into music. So in pop music, studies have shown that the more a chorus is repeated, or the more a certain song in that chorus is repeated, the more popular the song is. Hence, Despacito. And in classical music, repetition actually serves to communicate a very specific theme throughout the entire work. And so similarly, the scriptures and literary devices use that, that we might see themes, rhythms, and that we might be invited not just to see them, but to embrace them. 
Psychologists have found that it draws us into the emotional processing of the brain that puts us in a participatory stance, meaning that engages what we love, our affections, in such a way that we are ready to actually act upon the things we hear over and over and over again. The psychologist Elizabeth Margulis says that repetition serves as a handprint of human intent, a phrase that might have sounded arbitrary the first time might come to sound purposefully shaped and communicative the second. Now, I start that way because when I first read this passage, I called Lorenzo and I was like, so can I have another passage? <laughs> because it just looked like transition paragraphs between one important moment to the next. But the more and more I read it, what began to stand out are three distinct phrases. And it wasn't just here that I found those phrases, but it was all through the book of Acts, and it began to be themes that were actually found all through the New Testament. And those three phrases really help us sense what God is ultimately after when he says to follow Christ. Because sometimes we can get so distracted by the things of life that we get veered off course, we get so distracted by the culture around us, not feeling as though it's embracing or encouraging us to be Christians, that we just kind of veer off course. And so the three phrases that I want to unpack for us tonight are if God wills, reasoning in the synagogue, and strengthening the disciples. If God wills, reasoning in the synagogues, and strengthening the disciples. So let's start with if God wills. Now this phrase, if God wills, seems to be a phrase that is used throughout the leaders of the New Testament. So James picks up on it and talks about how we speak in future terms that we're gonna get this job, and we're gonna go to that place, and one day we're gonna do that, and he says, no, why don't you say, if the Lord wills? So Christianese in our subculture has picked that up, and a lot of times it's just used to hedge our bets. That we wanna like let God off the hook so we, that we're never really disappointed. We say like, oh, I hope that I get to do that, if God wills. And so we're afraid of feeling disappointed with God and so we do that, but it's actually a phrase that is more about being in the present. Being in the present, not worrying and concerned about the future. And I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this phrase, if God wills, but I wanna say this about how Paul uses it. Paul knows the uncertainty of life, but he also knows that his following Jesus and his living is not determined by the uncertainty of life. For us, uncertainty can often create anxiety and fear and even cause us to act out of those fears in unhealthy patterns and unhealthy ways. But he is saying circumstances change often and in very unexpected ways, but the way I will live will not. See, Paul, as you followed him to the book of Acts, he's been welcomed into certain cities like a king, and he's been driven out of other cities like a criminal. He's found himself working as a tent maker, and he's found himself working as a pastor. He's like the first actor, right? <laughs> he's got another job that, that really funds his passion. And he also knows what it is to be wealthy and also to be poor. But ultimately, none of that defines how he is going to live, and that's crucial for us if we're actually gonna follow Christ. See, this phrase, the way he uses it, if God wills, is really about a steadfast peace that he has of having his identity, who he is, defined by being in Jesus Christ and not by what he does. 
And so that assists him in knowing that wherever he goes, he will be undistracted, undeterred, and very decisive about how he will act in that moment. That he will not be a chameleon, that once he gets the fame, then he'll proclaim Jesus. Or that he'll proclaim Jesus when it's hard and he suffers. He's not doing that. He's saying, ultimately, wherever God takes me, I will be steadfast and peaceful in him. That My future and what happens, it could go this way or that, but it will not determine how I follow Jesus. How are you doing with that? How are you doing with that? I know there's been times in my life that I have literally said, man, I gotta take a break from this because I gotta focus on this other thing, and so when I get there, then I'll follow Jesus. There's just so much time and so much energy that I gotta put into this, I can't really devote myself to truly having a relationship with God. And so we keep pushing it further and further off. And I just want you to know that how you will live down the road is not determined by your circumstances then. It's determined by what, how you choose to live right now. That you have an, off, uh, an opportunity laid in front of you that you don't have to go about finding yourself and determining who you are. You have it given to you in Jesus. That you might have that steadfast peace that transcends circumstances so then you can enter into the rhythms of life that we see with Paul. And so the hope is that you might be able to say, if God wills, not as an attempt to be afraid of dis- being disappointed with God, but as a way of saying, whatever comes, I'm good. <laughs> if I could go this way or that, life could take a left turn, but I'm still with Jesus. Now, that allows Paul to enter into every situation with two primary rhythms that we're gonna look at for the rest of our time. And those two rhythms are reasoning and strengthening. Reasoning and strengthening. And so he starts by reasoning with people of other faiths and then strengthening those who share his faith. The common kind of names that we use for that are evangelism and discipleship within the church. But those two terms uh, can be sometimes ambiguous. And so what we see here is a very clear emphasis of what that even means for you if you are to be a Christian to try to evangelize. Because you're told, and just like in your city as in mine, thank you, but no thank you. I don't want to hear what you have to say about that. But Paul is experiencing the same thing. No one wanted to hear about Jesus in this first century. They weren't ready for that. They weren't looking for that. And so he knows he's entering into every new setting knowing that he is the only one that really understands who Christ is. So let's look at reasoning. I'm gonna spend more time here because I find that in all of kind of my travels, all of my working with the church, that evangelism in our day and age is one of the most difficult, most challenging things about how do we represent Christ in the public sphere. How do I embody Christ to my neighbor, to my coworker, to my boss, to those who work for me? It's the, it's the most confusing thing right now. So looking at the, the reasoning, so in verse 19, it says, when he came to Ephesus, he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews. Now in looking at this, I wanna show you how this reasoning has a place, a posture, and a purpose. Now the place that he goes to is first to the Jews and to the synagogue. Now we read in Acts chapter 17, verse two, that this was his custom. It says that every new city he went to, he would first go to the Jews and first go to the synagogue. Now there's a theological reason for that. 
where the gospel was first to come to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. That's what he says in Romans. That's what he says earlier in the book of Acts. So there's a theological reason, but there's also just a more personal and practical reason for Paul. For him, this is his comfort zone. Paul was trained to be a rabbi. He was trained to be a religious leader in the synagogue. He was raised as a Jew amongst Jews, he says. And so this is a comfortable place that he is able to then transition the gospel into that because it's easy for him. Now, he's able, he's capable of going elsewhere and kind of transferring the knowledge of the gospel into another setting that he's unfamiliar with, another context or culture. But he starts with what is comfortable. And I think you need to hear that. (laughs) That sometimes we hear evangelism and we think that we need to start in the hardest soil in the most distant place, instead of going, where has God just placed me? Where is your place? Because that place of comfort allows you to bring the language of the gospel into what you already know is the language of the people. Because the language of the people is the subculture that you find yourself in. And so every subculture has their own lingo and kind of language that is familiar that allows you to feel accepted and you naturally connect. So for instance, for me, that's sports and parenting. Like I made a musical reference earlier, but I know nothing about music. Like I'm just not there. People start talking about the new bands and I'm like, I do the smile and nod thing. Like, yeah, totally. And I'm like Googling later. Like, what are they talking about? But for some of you, that's your easy connecting point. You know that if you're in acting, if you're in marketing, if you're in finance, if you're a designer, When you get together with other people in those fields, it is easy for you to talk. You know the language of the people. And what God is asking you to do is bring the language of the gospel into the language of the people. And in that place, the vision that God has for it is the language of the people would become the language of the gospel, morphed together is the language of God's kingdom. That it's his kingdom manifested in the place where he has put you. And so part of that is just entering into that space. So for me, that looked like my relationship with my friend Giovanni. Giovanni and I have kids the same age. They're in the same school. And so Giovanni and I just struck up a conversation because his daughter wrote a love note to my son. (laughs) (laughs) And young love was blossoming. Now Giovanni also likes the Yankees and gets free tickets regularly. So I like Giovanni. And the natural language of parenting and the struggles of being a father with our age children became easy for us to connect. Attending a Yankees game became easy for me to connect with him. And in doing so, we began to develop a relationship that over a few months meant Giovanni came and joined me at church. And then we had a men's retreat, and Giovanni joined us on the men's retreat. And we sat around the table with a group of men over that weekend and just talked about everything under the sun. All the challenges of parenting, all the challenges of marriage, all the challenges of what does Jesus even mean when he says this or that? And on Monday, Giovanni texts me and says, hey, you got time for a phone call? And he calls me that afternoon and he says, hey, I see the relationship that you have with Jesus. I don't have that. Can you help me process what it means to have a relationship with Christ? Now, that's nothing special about me because Giovanni actually asked me if he could come to the men's retreat my church was putting on. I should have been inviting him. But that was just the work of God saying, I'm gonna put you in this place. And if you'll be present, and if you'll speak the language of the people there and get to know them, 
It'll be easy for you to bring the language of the gospel into their lives. Where is your place? And how can you bring the language of the gospel to the language of the people? Now, in doing so, the language of reasoning carries a posture. Now, in the Greek, the language that we typically have in the New Testament, reasoning is different from preaching and from evangelism. Where preaching often communicates just straight truth, it's one-sided. Evangelism is just an excited celebration, a heralding of the good news that you know. Reasoning is a dialogue, that you're entering into a conversation, it literally means mingling thought with thought, which I really love. I think that really communicates it. Because it really communicates a posture where you have a humble acknowledgement that both parties are bringing something equally worthy of talking about to the table. See, sometimes with the exclusive claims of Christianity, we can take on a posture as if we know better. And that's typically how we're received in the world. But if we take on the posture of reasoning, we begin to position ourselves in saying that you are a dignified image bearer of God, and you come with a belief system about what is good and what is right and what is true, and so do I. And so you are now mingling those thoughts together. Now, for me, that was a journey, because I would say that I sucked at evangelism. I was awful at it, partly because I just didn't do it, which is one of the key primary means by sucking at evangelism. It's just not doing it. And what happened to me is we, you know, my, my wife and I, we weren't raised in Christian homes, um, and so we get invited to family weddings, and we're like the token Christians that get invited to pray for everything. So the rehearsal dinner comes, and they say, hey, will you say a prayer? I'm like, sure, token Christians, got it. And so we pray, and we sit down at the table, and Amber and I, my wife, have been praying for that wedding, that we might be able to share what we believe. And at the table, her cousin leans over and says, Logan, I got a question for you. And he asked me a question of, about church and, and how we should think about it. And I'm like, yes, here we go. I know he doesn't know Jesus. This is going to be great. And I answer his question, thinking, man, we're about to get into like a really deep combo. I got the sinner's prayer in the pocket, ready to go. Um, and he's like, yeah, I agree with that. And then he moves on. Meanwhile, my wife turns to the woman sitting next to her and enters into a three-hour conversation where she gets this entire life story and then she's able to communicate the gospel to her and they exchange numbers at the end of it and I'm like, what just happened here? This was my turn. What you, you stole my turn of evangelism. And I left there going in awe of my wife, of her and just natural ability to do this, but also really frustrated with myself. And I left determined of I'm gonna fail at evangelism. I'm gonna fail forward until I actually feel comfortable with it. And in so doing, I started to look at how does Jesus engage those of other faiths? And the way that he does it is through dialogue. They come with questions, he responds with questions. Because what he is getting at, and he postures himself in such a way to invite relationship, not just communicate truth. That's the posture of reasoning that we would take on. And that posture also carries with it a purpose. Because the purpose that Jesus had in asking questions is to reveal the heart of the individual that he's engaging with. See, reasoning allows for someone to articulate their beliefs, and for many of them, it's their first time. Because outside of a religious environment, few people have actually asked them questions of what do they believe is the good life? What do they believe makes their life worth living? What is ultimately motivating them at a spiritual soul level? 
And reasoning invites them to reveal their hearts in hopes that you might reason with them and meet the desires of their heart with the ultimate hope of Jesus Christ. With the ultimate hope of Christ. Now, that takes time. In the scriptures and Acts, we hear that Paul reasoned weeks on end in the synagogue, sometimes months on end. And he did it not with the purpose of converting, but with the purpose of blessing. There's actually a Barna Group study that has come out, and they studied two groups of Christians. One that came in with the specific intent of converting someone to, be, to just say they believed and get baptized, and others came in as blessers, they called them, that they just came in to offer something to them that they had need of. And over the course of a couple years, they did this study, and the blessers had twice as many conversions of people that were choosing to follow Christ as the converters. See, reasoning takes, sees the place in which you have been called to. It takes on the posture of dignifying the person that you're engaging with and then with a purpose of blessing them with the hope and the truth of Jesus Christ. See, if we're able to have that steadfast peace in our circumstances where we're truly rooted in Christ, it allows us to go into a setting not having our, to be validated by what we believe, but then to reason with those that we engage with in order to bless their lives. And the good news for us is that the way in which we learn how to reason is by just a relationship with God. See, this is how God the Father and Jesus your King actually deals with you. See, God the Father doesn't pontificate at you. He doesn't just throw truth at you until you've got to figure it out and follow it. Now, your Father, when you enter into a relationship with Him, He listens to your feelings, He listens to your thoughts, He validates them, and then He begins to offer the better way forward. Jesus Christ, the patience that he has with his disciples is the same patience he has with you. That when you doubt, when you struggle, when you sin, that's not piling up to overcome his grace for you. His grace is piling up to overcome those issues in your life. And so if you enter into a relationship with God, a genuine, prayerful, journaling, in the scriptures, relationship with God, you're entering in with someone that is reasoning with you, and as you relate to him, then you'll be able to relate to those who are far from God. And so that's the invitation of the gospel, is that you would experience a, a reasonable God, reasoning with you, dialoguing, conversing, mingling your thoughts with his, in order that he might bless you. So that's the first rhythm, reasoning. The second thing we see him do is to strengthen the disciples. See, there's this kind of cyclical motion that goes on here, right? Where he goes out on mission and then comes into community. He goes out on mission and then comes into community. Because you can't just be on mission all the time. And some of you are feeling the effects of being in a city where you are on mission as a Lone Ranger Christian all the time meaning that outside of these walls or your neighborhood dinners or your community spaces, there's very little interaction that you have with a Christian. And as a result, that taxes your faith. It stretches it. It, it reveals your weaknesses. It reveals your struggles. And so you're in, in need to be in a community where you are consistently strengthened. Now, this is just the language of discipleship. The actual word just means to fix firmly and establish in the faith. And that's ultimately why you're here, right? If you're a follower of Christ. 
that you have come, that whatever you receive on Sunday in worship, whatever you receive in neighborhood gatherings, as you receive in the scriptures, that you might become more fixed, firmly established in the faith, knowing that you will be challenged with that faith with all the temptations of tomorrow, right? So what does it look like to strengthen the disciples? Well, I want you to see the need, the ability, and the choice to do so. First is the need. You will not be able to be fully strengthened until you acknowledge your need to be strengthened. Everyone in here has a need. It may be a knowledge about God that you don't know. It could be theological. It could be psychological. You could be carrying the pains of wounds that, of people that have done things to you in the past, family wounds, and you're in need of healing. It could just be straight physical it could be provision, it could be pain in your body, and you're in need of prayer for healing, you're in need of actual financial resources. All of us have come in with needs. Unfortunately, the church has not always existed as a place where you can be fully vulnerable about those needs. See, th being able to be in a space where you can acknowledge your humanity, the fact that there are limits to who you are, you have strengths and talents, but you have weaknesses and fears and anxieties and struggles. So you need to be in a space where you can acknowledge that because the gospel declares that you are in need of God to intervene. It also declares that you're in need of the body of Christ to intervene into your life. So my question to you is who knows your needs? Is there anybody inside the body of Christ that actually knows the true self? the depth of needs that you carry. And what I mean by that is an ability to be truly vulnerable, not the catchphrase vulnerability that we typically have today. Because there's a difference between vulnerability and calculated openness. What often goes on inside the body of Christ is calculated openness, meaning that we know that certain sins aren't gonna get a strong reaction so I can confess those. But can I really share about this struggle? See, calculated openness knows that transparency will get rewarded at a certain scale. Vulnerability says, I'm gonna take the meaningful risk of putting out my full self, my full needs out there, and see if I'm still gonna have a relationship with those people, or if they're gonna see me differently as a result of being fully vulnerable. See, this was the intent that God had in entering a relationship with you, is that in Him, you could just be fully open and fully vulnerable and that you might see that he has the ability to love you in the midst of all of your shame and all of your guilt and all of your fear. But he intended for the body of Christ to be that space. And we haven't always done a great job of that. And much of it is because we are not truly aware of the full depth of our humanity in the strengths and in the darkness. So that's our need, that we all come in with needs to be strengthened, and so we have to be exposed and look for those people to strengthen us. But the second half of that is that we all have the ability to strengthen others. That in our humanity, being made in the image of God, image bearers of God, we have specific skills, talents, abilities, wisdom, life experience that the person sitting next to you needs. And this is the beauty of God, is that not only does, and when you enter a relationship, are you free to expose your humanity, but he gives you his divinity, 
with your humanity, he gives you divinity. He puts the Holy Spirit of God inside of you so that all your talents, all your abilities, all your experience can now be empowered by a supernatural reality within you to meet the needs of others. And the needs of every church community will always be most effectively met by the ability of that same church community. That it's not by accident that you're at Collective Church. You are needed here. Your abilities are needed here. And your needs can be met here. That's how you're going to be strengthened. And how that looks with vulnerability is a, is a simple four-word phrase that is very powerful. That if someone opens themselves up to you, the way to speak the gospel into their lives is to be able to say, I love you anyways. That when they begin to expose the depths of their sin, struggle, weakness, you can look to them and you can say, as God has said to you in Jesus Christ, I love you anyways. That's the community of the gospel that you've been invited into and the rhythm you've been invited into that you could feel that strengthening you and then you could extend that strength to somebody else. See, for the last few years in my relationship with Giovanni, he's become that for me. And as we, he has grown in the faith and as we have grown in relationship, we have what we call rooftop theology. And I'm hoping this is a no judgment zone here. Um, <laughs> What we do, especially in the summer times, because you don't, in New York City, we don't have this beautiful weather all day long. <laughs> it gets cold and nasty. Um, and so when it gets nice, we go up to the roofs. <laughs> and we sit around the roof, we share some bourbon, we smoke a cigar, and we just talk life. And that is one of the few spaces where I feel like I can say anything, I can do anything, and I can receive from those men around me just a simple, we love you anyways. We're with you. And I feel that with my wife, and I feel that in this Christian community, and I'm thankful for that. You can't have that with everybody, though. <laughs> See, oftentimes we want to have that with everybody. Like, we treat, we treat real friendship like social media friendship. <laughs> it's like not a thing. <laughs> you can't be vulnerable with everybody. True vulnerability where your needs are actually met is that it's an intimate, small group. So you can't demand that of somebody, but you can pray for it and seek it out and hope to find it. And when you do, you begin to reciprocate that. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the community formed by the gospel. Now, the last thing about strengthening the disciples that I'll say is that it's a choice. It's a choice. One of the things that is profoundly impactful for me as I read the book of Acts is that the life of a missionary is very tiring. And yet Paul doesn't stop choosing to strengthen the disciples. He doesn't stop choosing to reason with the Jews in the synagogue. I mean, think about it. He goes to a new place that doesn't know him. <laughs> He's going, he could go on vacation, right? He could just go to the Mediterranean and just chill on the beach. But he makes the choice regularly of if I'm going to follow Christ, I'm going to make sure that I'm choosing to enter into this as a giver, not just a taker. And so he understands what it is to give and receive in that regard. And what he is doing is once again embodying Jesus. Because there's a counterintuitive reality to strengthening others that also strengthens ourselves. We see this very clearly with Jesus and the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, one of my favorite stories in all the scriptures. 
Here we find Jesus. The scene opens, and he is thirsty, and he is hungry by this well. And he sends his disciples to go and get food. And then around the noon hour, which is not the normal time for someone to come get water, comes a Samaritan woman, a woman who experiences shame everywhere else. So she comes by herself to the well. And Jesus asks for a drink. And they get into a dialogue. And ultimately what begins to happen is disciples return and they're surprised by what they see. Because Jesus is speaking to a woman. (gasps) And in doing so, he meets the depth of her thirst, even though he was thirsty. His disciples come and bring him food, and he says, I'm not hungry anymore. And they're looking around like, did someone bring him food too? And he says, no, my food is to do the will of my Father in heaven. And so here, the scene opens with Jesus thirsty and hungry, and yet as he meets the thirst of someone else, he feels fed by doing the will of God. See, for many of us, we feel like we are in a position where we just need to take, we haven't got it figured out, we have so many needs, and yet we're gonna discover in meeting the needs of others, our needs are gonna be met as well. But it is an act of faith and it is a choice. So the question is, what will you choose? What will you choose? Will you choose the steadfast peace of identity in Christ that allows you to say, if God wills, I know it'll be good whether it's this way or that, whether it's the career I dreamed of or the one I didn't. Will you be able to say, whatever God wills, it's good? And in doing so, will you then say, this week, I'm gonna go into the place where he sent me to take on the posture of Jesus Christ with the purpose of blessing them with the good news of the gospel? And then when you gather at the neighborhood dinner, will you go in saying, God, give me the courage to embrace the need I have. And give me the courage to see that I have the abilities to meet the needs of my brother and sister. The choice is left to you. And my hope in doing that and in communicating that to you is that in choosing God, in choosing Jesus, that the steadfast peace of Christ that he promises is the truth and the reality of Jesus Christ and the gospel would rest upon your hearts, would rest upon your minds, and could create in you a conviction that God is for you, that God is with you, and wherever you go, wherever you turn, he will be inside of you, moving through you for whatever needs to happen in that moment. It's a step of faith, and I pray that you'll take it. So let's pray together.